Welcome to the DevLaunch Podcast, where we bring you inspiring stories of the tech industry's rising stars. Our guest today is Chris LeFay, the CEO and founder of Classic City, which is an Atlanta-based web-first marketing company. Now, Chris first got his start as a freelance WordPress developer, which eventually evolved into a full-blown development agency. But as you're about to hear, things got pretty dire for them by the end of 2019. Let's listen and learn from his obstacles and what he's done to turn this ship around. Chris, welcome to the show. I am very excited to be here today. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So Chris, it seems like you've always been a pretty entrepreneurial guy from your first venture all the way in elementary school, all the way to being exclusively a freelancer. I was, I think one of the first things I remember you telling me about yeah. is you never really worked a W2 job per se. You'd always been a freelancer. So you've always been this entrepreneurial kind of guy. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that origin story? Yeah. So back when I was in elementary school, like you said, that was in like Harry Potter and those types of books were super popular. And when I went to my school's book fair, I, instead of getting Harry Potter, like every other human being out there, I found, oh, actually, I actually have it right here. Hold on. I found this book. <laughs> I need to go find the author of this book and look them up and see where they're today. But that's what I bought for myself. And ever since then, I have been in the web development field. And so I started in middle school. I made a hundred bucks in middle school building a website. I actually met, I actually saw that person that I built that hundred dollar website for about a year or so ago. Um, it's crazy how the, everything all stays nice and connected, but I got started in middle school and over time, basically just morphed a freelance gig from middle school through college and kind of stumbled into agency ownership. Hmm. And what I like, like what I like to tell people is I've never for the most part made a single dollar outside of the web industry. Now hmm. I did umpire little league baseball for one season. And if you've ever umpired or refereed any sport, you know how terrible <laughs> that job is in dealing with crazy parents and crazy mm -hmm. coaches mm -hmm. for rec baseball sports or any sport out there. But that was it. Outside of that, every dollar I've made has been within the web industry, which has its pros and its cons. Mm -hmm. So a lot of in-depth experience, not a lot of breadth. And mm -hmm. so that part of that journey is taking away, not taking away, but Relearn. Um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not relearning bad practices. That's not, that's what I was about to say, but getting rid of bad practices yeah. of 15 years of basically being solo. And that's not entirely true to running an agency and having to really turn on a dime to be an owner and a CEO and not somebody that executes on tasks, yeah. which anymore. arguably it's a, a completely different function to be a freelancer is it, it's not being an agency owner is not just being a freelancer. Plus it's like a whole new set of skills and a whole new way of doing things. So I can definitely see that. It, it has been a challenge. Um, and really over in from the years like 2016 to 2019, we tried to grow the business and mm -hmm. it didn't work. Long mm -hmm. story short, we, we hired good people but we never really got past this like plateau of revenue. Mm -hmm. And when it crashed, 
I realized that I didn't have, I had good people, but I didn't have experienced people around me. Mm. I had been a freelancer for so long, working within the friends and family network, if Mm -hmm. you will, none of those people that I brought on had more experience than Mm. me in Mm. either my industry or an adjacent one. All very smart people. I would still hire, still hire them today in different roles, but they weren't the people that I needed at the time. Sure. I needed people that would put up the the bumpers of the bowling alley, if you will, so that I wouldn't fly off the rails this way or that way and take too much risk. So I took way too much risk very early on and ate it three mm. years later. Yeah. Well, okay. So, and, and I, I want to dive in more because I know one of the things we're going to talk about, especially is that kind of that turning point in 2019. So we're going to mm-hmm. get there in a minute, but I want to backtrack a little bit uh, earlier on in your career. You know, you, you'd said you'd done primarily or exclusively really freelancing all throughout. So yeah. what were those early days freelancing like for you? Like what were some of the languages that you were primarily working in? Yeah. So I was really a front end and a back end developer. So I got started doing design, HTML and CSS. Actually, at the very beginning, throwing it back to Swish. I don't know if you remember that knockoff version of Flash. That's <laughs> I went with a portfolio of Swish-based websites to my first employer, hmm. hoping for a web job, and somehow the man hired me. Um, <laughs> but mainly focusing on HTML, a little bit of CSS at the beginning. Because again, all of what I've really done is marketing websites. We've done hmm some apps to varying levels of success. And over time, when I got to college, one of my professors who was actually teaching the first web development class I was ever going to be in, I got so excited. I was like, I'm finally going to learn something new. Mm-hmm. And so I flipped through his syllabus or his textbook that he created. I flipped to the very last page and he's talking about like div tags and floats at the very end. I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> This is as deep as we're going to get. I know all this already. Mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful because I went to him after that first class was over. And I was like, I know all this. You can believe me or not. I can show you. But what what can I do? I can help you teach. I can learn something new. I can not trying to be a pain in the butt. But how how can you get value and how can I get value from this class? Mm -hmm. And he said, learn WordPress. And so... Over the course of that semester, I learned how to build custom themes within WordPress and picked up some, you know, custom plugin pieces. And that's what dove me down into more intense PHP work is understanding how MySQL works, PHP, the whole nine yards. I was a designer as well. Not the best, but it was good. And so I was able to take a client completely start to finish from design to development and custom functionality all within WordPress. And Mm. so... Those three areas were my bread and butter. And to this day, still never have dove into JavaScript that much. I can Mm. write some dang good jQuery loops, but (laughs) that's that's about it. And I know that that dates me, but here we are. When you're doing marketing websites, 95% of the time, a lot of times, all you need are some simple jQuery toggles here and there. Mm -hmm. And that's really 
it. Yeah. Well, and I think that even speaks to where it's less, sometimes it's less important. I mean, obviously there's, there's a time and a place for having the right uh, language or right, you know, tech stack, whatever. Yeah. But, but a lot of times it's really knowing your audience and knowing like the people that you're working with. And to your point, if a marketing site is just as capable of running on WordPress, like why would you, you know, go off the deep end and, you know, build it in a completely different language than what, what is it? 90% of every website is based on WordPress. And that's when we were actually, <clears throat> I was talking, we have an agency partner that we work with and one of their clients is looking to rebuild their website right now. And they, they're a larger company. Don't get me wrong. They, they got, they, they got some, they got some depth to what they have and they're interested in going headless, which I, I get the benefits there. But I also understand from a marketing website where it's basically just blogs and marketing pages. When you have marketing folks on your team wanting to go in and add custom pages and drag and drop blocks and things along those lines, when you go headless, sometimes that becomes a little bit more, that becomes a little harder. Now, if all mm. your content is structured in a consistent fashion, sure, great, wonderful. But if you have people that want to have different landing pages that all look completely different from each other because they're targeting different audiences, mm -hmm. I don't see the need for that as much right now. And so there, there does become a point to where getting out of WordPress is a great idea. I do not, I'm not one of those evangelists that think WordPress solves every problem. It assuredly does not. <laughs> yeah, and right. it has a shelf life. Eventually something better will come up. Yep. Totally know that. But I'm seeing what I, what I, what I worry with a lot of folks and we'll just call them simple marketing departments seeing these new buzz words and topics and technologies around headless and things like that, jumping ship too quickly, and then having an oversized development budget within their marketing team that just doesn't need to happen mm -hmm. quite yet. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. So, and one thing I'm really curious about as we look at those early freelancing days specifically, um, what can you share? Like, what was your hourly rate as a freelancer? And like, how did that progress? Obviously, you'd been in the freelance track for a while. So like, how did that hourly rate kind of progress as you went on throughout your career? And like, were you doing this a long time before you started uh, subcontracting or then hiring your first employee? Like what? Talk to me about that. Yeah. So for the longest time back in like, if we're going so college for me was about 10 years ago as a frame of reference. <laughs> and my hourly rate was around 35 bucks an hour. And so, you know, you extrapolate that out to, you know, full-time work, 70,000 bucks a year, not too bad, you know, for a decade ago and um, being basically, you know, one person deal, um, just me and my wife and we were doing good. And so <clears throat> over throughout college, I was able to kind of get that up to 50 in some cases where I had some discussion points was I was able to tap into a couple of, consulting companies pretty early on to where they needed help from an individual to offload some of their work. It would be like a development company that didn't have anybody that did WordPress or design. They only did custom apps, hmm. but some of their clients just needed a marketing site. And that was kind of their, their foot in the door. So I took those on. When you work with other consulting companies, you get the, it's like the bulk rate. It's like the wholesale rate, right? So it's like, Hey, they'll guarantee you 30, 40 hours a week but you're not going to get paid 50 or 60 an hour. You might get paid 40. Mm. And so I got in with a couple of those, especially once my one or two full-time jobs kind of dipped out and I was really on my own right after college. And 
I remember having a conversation with my wife right after college and, and when I lost that last job. And I was like, I have 15 hours of work coming in from this other company. I have 20 hours of work coming in from this other company. So I have two, so I have 35. And I think my rate of one was 50 and the other was 35. Hmm. And I was like, I just lost my job. I went from salary to none. Now I did have these side things happening at the same time as well, too. Hmm. But I was like, I would rather not have a salary and go from 100% to zero. I would rather have 15 hours here and 20 hours here to where if one of them dropped me, we at least will have some money coming in to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And that was the start of it was wanting to not put all my eggs in one company as basket. Mm -hmm. And then over time, honestly, the rate growth was really hard for me. I was at 50 for a long time and we were able to get, because obviously project work was a, a little bit more profitable. We were able to, we got to about 300,000 bucks on an effective rate of like somewhere between 50 and 70 bucks an hour. Wow. I have no idea looking back on it. I don't know how the accounting of that all worked (laughs) because when we started hiring folks in 2016, one of the first people I hired sat me down and was like, Chris, we can't make 50 bucks an hour. We have to at least make 75 and my like stomach just turned over. I'm like, there's no way we're going to be able to charge 50% more shocker. It all worked out just fine. Interesting. But then over the next three years during that growth, that, that failure period of 2016 to 19, we went from 75 to a hundred to 125 to 150. And we, we saw a lesser amount of clients, but we ended up doing harder work. And so it took people longer. And we also, we, that was, that was during the bad period of time. We ended up losing money in the long run because we didn't have a sales engine. And mm-hmm. so I am always, I've been the person because I've had 15 years of freelance work and it's kind of, you know, eat what you kill kind of mindset. I don't think about raising my rates ever. It is not in my blood. It needs to be. And my team is starting to push up to push me like actively now because we've been at 150 for a while, a long while. And we discount that some for the agencies that we do B2B partnerships with and things like that. So we go all the way down to 100 still today. Mm-hmm. But some of our contractors cost us 65, 75, 80, 100 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. And so we need to, that's actually part of probably what's going to be in our 2024 plans is, are we, how are we going to start raising that going into 2024? Hmm. So it, it took some time. So, okay. So if I can recap a couple of things I heard you say, the first thing was, you know, you'd been doing that freelancing and then right around that 2016 mark is kind of when you started bringing on other people, you started growing, essentially stumbling into that agency space. And then you said from 2016 to 2019, you know, there's some, it was, it was a rough period because things kind of took a a little bit of a nosedive. Could you speak to some of those issues? You you already talked a little bit to them, but can you speak to some of the issues that were bubbling under the surface that ultimately culminated in this 2019 nosedive? Yes. So in summary, it's all about cash flow, Hmm. And I did not understand that because I didn't have people that have been around longer than me helping me run my business. So that's kind of the foundational piece there. With that being said, 
we grew the business from, you know, the last 10 years to really plateauing at around somewhere around 320, 370,000 bucks a year with that freelancer plus model. And in 2016, I have like a hundred thousand bucks in the bank. So if you're like, you know, if you're revenueing 300 K a year and you got a hundred K in the bank, that's like what a third to a fourth of your annual revenue, just sitting there. That's a great feeling. It feels like a ton of money. Don't get me wrong. hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money at the end of the day. But what I did was I started hiring full-time people. Hmm. I did not trickle people in as necessary. So I hired a part-time COO type that was going to help with sales and operations and things like that. And what she did that actually still permeates through till today, our nomenclature and our Google drive is still there because of her. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I hired her first. She brought in an admin to help her out. We hired a designer and we hired a developer and all those people looking back on it were at much lower than industry average rates for the time. So it wasn't like we were paying these people $100,000 a year. We were Mm -hmm. paying all of them way less than that. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have enough work to account for a full-time developer, a full-time designer, me still being basically a full-time developer or designer. We didn't have 100 hours of execution work a week Hmm. between all of that. And I didn't know that. I thought in my infancy that when you have money in the bank, the first thing you do is you go hire people. Mm. And that's not true. Hmm. We also had with cash flow, what was the hardest part for me to see was we had a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, right? Payroll hit and we went down to 80,000 and I'm making some of these numbers up for simplicity. Mm-hmm. When accounts receivable all came in in cash, we only got back up to 99. Then when payroll hit, which is the same every two weeks, it went down to 89. Accounts receivable pushed up to 98. So there is a through line going down. But if you're looking at everything on a cash basis, you see the 99 number, which is a little bit lower than it was before. But then you look at what you do have in accounts receivable, and you're like, oh, we got 30, 40,000 bucks in account receivable. So in reality, we have like 140K in the bank. But when it's that, when you're only losing $1,000 a month, Mm -hmm. that through line is ridiculously difficult to see from somebody who is coming from a freelance background to where they don't have that consistent month to month overhead expense. Mm. And I don't know how it took three years to lose all of that money because in three years in 2019, we had 2000 bucks in the bank. Hmm. We had $20,000 in accounts receivable and I had a 20,000, no $25,000 payroll Hmm. and I couldn't do it. And every founder has that type of a story. That's right. And so I just got on the phone and called all of our, we basically issued new invoices for everything that we did within the last seven days and said, can you please ACH dump this into our account today? Please. Thank you. God bless. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we, we got through it, but at the end of the day, it was not understanding how to look at cash flow. We hired way too early and we actually have processes now about how we hire. So we Mm -hmm. don't hire too early anymore. And understanding 
how to look at longer term planning because we didn't have retainers at that time either. So mm -hmm. we couldn't really do any type of long term planning. Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. You had said so many really, really great lessons. I hope people go back and listen to this little excerpt because there's like probably a hundred different lessons to be had in this, just this little th three year short period of time. Um, but one thing that you had said that really stuck, sticks out to me, because it's something I talk about with, with my clients and my prospects is that looking at the cash balance itself really was a pretty misleading indicator for you as to how to run your business. And I'm going to venture a guess that you're not the only person who has that gut feeling, right? We see a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. We think, boom, I am so profitable, or I am in such a good spot, I'm ready to hire a bunch of people. So they look at that one thing, and they make a huge decision. But in your experience, you saw that that was very misleading and, and ultimately caused some, some headache and some heartache later down the road. And so now what we do, I'm, I'm really grateful we're running, we're in an industry that has a ton of freelancers. And so <clears throat> we have a thing called our talent network. And we're constantly interviewing. We're interviewing developers, designers, content writers, project managers, the whole nine every week. And we don't go and tell these people that we're, you know, we have job openings. We let them know ahead of time, like, hey, we're an agency. We're growing. We want to know what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And if you enjoy freelance, if you want a full-time job, we just want to get to know you. Hmm. Because we get a lot of different types of projects that come in. And it's very scattered. And sometimes we need to turn to somebody on a dime. And so we want to make sure that we have that talent ready to go. And that's, that, that, that's how we lead it. But we now have a database of 50 to 60 people that have expressed some level of interest. And we've had a 15 minute or 30 minute conversation with them to make sure that they're not crazy. Now, I know that right. you can't really tell everything within a 15 to 30 minute conversation, mm -hmm. but somebody from some senior person on our team has talked to them. Yeah. And now we can solve client problems quickly when they pop up. Mm. But we also now know we have a pipeline for potential full-time employees mm. later down the road. And I think that's a really interesting take. When you and I were talking about this, I was like, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we, we talk a lot about uh, the importance of a sales pipeline because that's like the bread and butter for your business. Right. But a talent pipeline, I think, is probably often overlooked because, you know, obviously we want to make sure we have the revenue first. But you also, to your point, you might have that perfect gig that comes across that you don't have anybody on your bench right now ready to deploy. But if yes. you have a consistent talent pipeline, boom, you're ready to go. And in the last probably 18 months or so, we've added a whole, basically a brand new marketing arm to our business. Mm -hmm. And with that addition we haven't had any delivery issues. It's, it's a completely different service. We're not designing and coding websites. We're helping people with brand messaging and marketing and email campaigns, the whole nine yards. Hmm. And adding that wing of our business, I, I do these things with clients called internal reviews where I ask them, you know, how is our communication, our quality of work and our timeliness, 15 minute overview with the CEO to make sure that at a high level projects and things are going well. And when I do these meetings with our marketing centered clients, 10 out of 10 would recommend across the board. Hmm. And so that's not a, I'm not trying to like, but like, you know, bump myself up ego wise, but because we had that talent pipeline of all these different people, we could immediately tap into those folks at expert levels mm -hmm. 
quickly. And we had a variety of different types of folks. We had some that are junior, mid-level, senior. Mm -hmm. So we immediately could take a marketing project and say, we need expert level here. We need junior level there Mm -hmm. so that we could keep our profit margins perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And then once that work grows large enough, we can then start offering salary. And that's kind of how we work it with a lot of people Uh... is we say, we don't, and there's a little bit of a culture thing that we're working on, on how do we make this feel like more of a big deal? But because of my freelance background, my thought is you become a full-time employee when we have 40 hours a week of work for you. Yep. So it's basically like a, hey, you've hit it. We'll guarantee you that money mm-hmm. now rather than having, I mean, we still do time track as a lot of our stuff is hourly, mm-hmm. but that's how we view salary. We typically don't hire zero to 40 hours a week immediately. Like that. We. Well- work with people for a while. And I was gonna say, and it's nice too, because you also get a you you get a sense for like how they work and like their if it's a culture fit, a culture fit, value fit, it's a lot easier to say, yeah, I think we're going to be done after only having a 10 hour a week contract than it is to be like, hire somebody full time. So I think that's, I think that's really wise. One thing I'm curious about you had said, you know, in that period of 2016 to 2019, you, you ran into this invisible ceiling of like, 320k to like 370k and it's just like you couldn't break through that um could you would you be able to like attribute something or a a a myriad of things that caused that ceiling um and then ultimately like what did you finally change that gave way to the monumental growth and the trajectory that you're on right now so a we didn't have retained revenue so that was Mm -hmm. problem so all of that revenue for the most part, was new year over year. That's not entirely true, but it's close enough. Piece two of that is where we were spending time doing business development was not the right areas. We were doing local networking groups and stuff like that, where we were meeting with the exact same people every single week. Hmm. And we we have created some great relationships from those. Um, Some people that might be listening to this will be like, hey, I met you from that. What are you (laughs) bad-mouthing it for? Um, No, we did. We met some great people, but it took a few years to really build those relationships in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. The other piece was we didn't know how to retain our clients well. And I think that's actually one of the bigger pieces that now that I've understood that better – that a lot of organizations are missing out on. It's actually part of how we do our marketing piece hmm. of our business is we, it isn't just about outbound net new sales. It's about how are you communicating with your current customers? Hmm. How are you giving them in a consulting agency? How are you giving them status reports? Everything is marketing at the end of the day. Yeah. And so when I, so in 2019, all the, you know, the downfall happened at the beginning of 21, I hired an executive advisor who had been, he's 20, 30 years my senior. I don't know. He's 20 years my senior. Um, He'll listen to this and give me crap about it later. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And he's run multiple businesses and has grown them over the years. And I wanted him on, on my side of the court. And one of the things that he drilled into my head and has been drilling in my head consistently is retain clients or where the money is. It doesn't have to be retainers and, and consistent monthly income. It is, what are you doing to get to know at least three people inside every company that you work with? Hmm. Because if you only have one relationship, you are one relationship away from losing a contract. Interesting. And so by knowing three, 
if one person leaves, you still have two. Mm-hmm. And isn't just three people on the same level. It's how do you know your point of contact's boss, somebody under them, somebody to the side, kind of understanding how that hierarchy works mm-hmm. so that you, you know, it's the whole idea of like a, was it a three string cord is wound well and it can't be undone or something like that. I can't mm-hmm. remember the exact phrase there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then scheduling direct conversations with those folks as well mm-hmm. too. So we started doing what I talked about earlier, internal reviews to where we talk about how are we performing as a team for y'all, but also we're asking questions. I'm trying to ask questions. What's upcoming the next quarter? What's Mm -hmm. upcoming next year? What are your 2024 plans? Mm -hmm. Whatever that looks like and get them to start talking about the types of problems that they're trying to solve Mm -hmm. and be like, Oh, you want to integrate with that system over there? Oh, I mean, we can put that on your website, you know, Mm -hmm. boom, done. I can't tell you, how much, like most people say it is hard. Once you're in a retainer with a client, it's hard to get more money than that year Mm -hmm. over year. We have been growing our current client base the last three years. So let me rephrase that. We have taken our current clients that we have and been lifting them up and up and up and up over the years. Not many of them have dipped. Now, obviously project-based stuff goes from a hundred percent to zero percent. We still have that, Mm -hmm. but Having those consistent touch bases with customers, not about the nitty gritty details of the project, has been a game changer for us over the last three years. And honestly, has been a big part of that growth. And the last thing I'll say to that point is I did a very bad job at the beginning of my career doing this of following people around. And so I, this is a, this is a good example. This just happened a couple of months ago. Uh, somebody within my HubSpot popped up <clears throat> and I was like, oh, I haven't talked to that person in a year. And the project we did, the middle part wasn't too good. We were able to save it and we ended on a good note. That person had moved to a different organization. So a couple months ago, I reached out to her. And I was like, hey, it's been about a year. Let's chat. And later today, we are going to go down there and talk to them about their website, their marketing strategy, their whole nine yards, hmm. because I reached out to somebody that I haven't talked to in a year. And so that consistent communication, Mm -hmm. even if it's just to say hello, Mm -hmm. wins over time. And that has been both of those things in combination with each other has been the catalyst for growth over the Mm -hmm. last three years. Well, and and this I I would put that in in a category of of business development. It doesn't like it's it's a type of marketing, but it's not like you don't know for sure if there's a need. It's just like keeping things warm, keeping relationships warm. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think business development can oftentimes be overlooked because we feel like it's not actually doing work, but it's actually like key and critical. Um, But two other things I heard from your experience, you know, as we look hindsight being 2020, what did you learn in, and what, what was the thing that you needed to do to kind of, to take off really the catalyzing event. It sounded like was working with somebody who had more experience, that advisor who could speak in with a degree of experience and show you a couple, like one or two things. He probably didn't inundate you with a million things to do. He just helped you to focus on the, the highest priority and the lowest hanging fruit as you guys talked about, which is the second thing, is retaining the existing clients and ensuring that you are providing as much value and bringing as much value to the table as you can for them and therefore be able to retain the the 
the dollar amount or the the value extraction amount for the existing clients that you have. Exactly. And building systems for those. And mm -hmm. that's what actually would like the, from an execution standpoint, hmm. that's what made everything much more manageable. We started using HubSpot and for every person that we labeled inside of an active business or an inactive business, every individual within that organization that we deemed as somebody that could move, not necessarily move mountains, but move things around. We had a scheduled task within HubSpot for either every month, two months, three months, or six months that recurred mm. to get in touch with them mm. in some way, shape, or form. Now, not all those people need to have those internal reviews and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but just a quick email that says, hey, how's life going? How's the family, et cetera. And we have a notes field in each of those contacts to just notate like personal things about that person. They like the Atlanta Braves baseball team. They like <laughs> going hiking or whatever. Yeah. And so when those emails get sent out to touch base, we have something that isn't just a generic, hi, how's it going? Mm -hmm. And so by, by doing that and sending that out, there's that personal touch that all of those pieces have to them. Hmm. And they're all, for the most part, consistent. And when you are consistent with it and you follow the system that you put into play, that's when the wins happen. Hmm. So that's, I love that. That was that's, the executable piece that worked. That is so good. And, and it's evidenced in how you are growing, right? Cause I think you and I were just talking about this. You're on, on pace, if not have already broken through the million dollar yeah. uh, a year. Um, in fact, you're, you're well on your way. Um, even this, this year alone, you're well on your way beyond that. So I'm, I'm stoked for you. I think as we talk about breaking past the million dollar mark, um, one of the things I've heard is that zero to a million is probably the hardest stretch of any business. And then going from one to 10 million arguably is not as difficult for a variety of reasons, but you are in the, in the seat right now in that place. You've been through the zero to 1 million. You're now on your way to the 10 million mark. Um, do you agree with that statement? Do you agree that now that you're past the million dollar mark, things get a little bit easier or do you see things differently? So given that it took me about what, 15 years to go from zero to a million, <laughs> I, I sure hope that it is a little bit easier to get to the $10 million mark. That would be, that would be great. Um, but the, it's the the mindset shift of mm -hmm. what's happening day to day. Cause you can run at least from a like web consulting company like mine, mm -hmm. where we're not selling physical product. I know, I know of a couple of companies that are making four or 5 million bucks. They sell physical products. Mm -hmm. They have a team of three, like you can grow much higher than a million really easily with different types of business models. But in consulting, I feel like that's a little bit hard because you have to have very key experts in key locations within the business. Mm -hmm. You can't get away with, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but people just to stock the warehouse with more product. Mm -hmm. And so where I see the difficulty happening for me personally is still that mindset shift of person that is executing on tasks to going to the CEO founder role, mm -hmm. um, which given 15 years of experience in the other making that pivot within an 18 to 24 month time span. It's like going hundred miles an hour, slamming on the brakes and making a U-turn at a stoplight mm. sort of thing is what mm. I feel like I'm doing right now. Mm. Um, thankfully there's been no injuries for the most part <laughs> in that car. Um, 
so that's the it's the hardest part is the mindset shift mm. and what you can't do from a consulting side is you can't over invest in too many experts at one time because the cash flow might not be there quite yet. Interesting. So building that ladder for juniors and mids to be able to sit in that expert seat with mm. clients is key. And so what we did not do early on, and I still don't, I think we have a lot of a lot of room for improvement in this area is taking people that are a little bit greener in their expertise and actually creating a growth trajectory for mm. them over mm. time. Mm -hmm. And that might take a few years to get somebody from A to B, which is fine. But having that written down and structured to where you have backups, mm -hmm. at least, mm -hmm. and filling in some of those fractional expert roles, you have to do it with contractors to yep. start off with. But having the mindset of wanting those people to be full time, mm -hmm. that's the long term goal to build a team of high quality experts in multiple areas so that when you go and meet up with a client, you can be like, yeah, that guy's got 10 years of experience. That guy's got 15. That guy's got 20, whatever it is, and be able to put those people on that plateau or that um, that stage effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be the hardest part for us going from one to 10 is how do we get those people in the right positions? How do we get them full time? Mm -hmm. And then how do we build teams underneath them yeah. and still provide growth opportunities as well too? Yeah. So that's the challenging part. It's 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 like the the pivot from the under a million to the one to ten million. It's it's that mindset shift. But then, like you're saying, probably one of the greatest um, you know tactical uh, changes is is in the talent pipeline. Essentially, is kind of what you're getting at. And I, I think one last question I want to ask before I want to turn it over to you to give us some last little bits of words of wisdom before we wrap up. But one of the last questions I want to ask you is. In that one to ten million dollar range, typically, again, I've heard that founders will bring on that executive or leadership team to kind of, kind of round them out, help them see maybe some blind spots, so that they can ultimately do that scale from one to ten million. As you look to drive your ship forward, how have you been processing that decision of of standing up that leadership team? So that's what we're actively doing, and so <clears throat> we have been really blessed in a way because I've been able to bring onto my team people that I have worked with a lot in the past. Mm -hmm. And so our marketing director was my client. He was the, our mm -hmm. point of contact, the company that he was working for dissolved. We grabbed him up. And so he's mm -hmm. our marketing director. Um, going back to that very first job that I ever had that I submitted those Swish websites for, I was able to hire him recently and he's running our product slash web services team and whatnot now. Hmm. Person who's been my admin for years and years and years, started with me in 2016, is now sitting in that integrator seat for us mm -hmm. um, because she knows everything about the business and can organize everything to a T and make sure that it gets done. And so with all that being said, we have been able to slowly kind of tack those people in. We've been working with them for a while but shifting them into an actual leadership team mm. has been the change. Mm -hmm. And the hardest part during this part of the shift is 
getting those people, what is hard for me to see because I'm all about billable hours mm-hmm. in general, whether it's project or retainer. Mm-hmm. And what is hard for me to see is it does make sense to have these leaders not be billable. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean they have to be 0% billable, mm-hmm. but there needs to be a transition process of going from effectively a hundred percent billable to at least 50, 50. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit later, 25, 75, yep. and then eventually zero hundred. And the mm-hmm. switch doesn't have to switch immediately. That's right. But it eventually, you, it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so jotting down, not jotting down, but actually taking time to write down the responsibilities for every position mm-hmm. is what we're doing now, actually, every position. Mm-hmm. And so some of our team members who are on leadership are filling in three different roles. Yep. So their roles and responsibilities are like two pages long. Now, we don't expect that all those things are done at 100% accuracy all the time. Mm-hmm. We're aware that we're stretching some folks thin. But we should then be able to say this segment of responsibility, we are going to take off of your plate by the end of the year. Mm. So then you will, the, the percentages of perfection, for lack of better terminology, mm-hmm. get better and better and better mm-hmm. in those key areas because people aren't spread as thin. Yeah, I think defining those different roles and those even if it's a lot, it doesn't matter if it's a lot, as long as you know that within that long list, not everything is going to be perfect and have the, then you have the ability to take away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And as you're saying that, you know, the thing that's coming to my mind is also part of the reason why I think there's a, a growing desire, especially in this call it one to probably 20 million in revenue mark why there's such a growing desire for like the fractional fit, because like you're even seeing right now, like you probably don't need a full-time CMO or you don't probably don't need a full-time CFO because there's just not enough meat on the bone to do that. But fractional makes so much sense because you can now alleviate some of that pressure from somebody else. So they can be doing more revenue generating activities or something that only they can do. And fractionals can kind of come in and, and fill those gaps at a, at a more affordable rate. But I love how you're processing through. I think we've learned so much. I've learned a lot hearing your experience. So I appreciate you you talking about this. Before we go, though, I want you to speak some words of wisdom. Um, maybe, maybe it's a younger version of yourself. Uh, I'm thinking about two people in particular. One person who is maybe a senior dev in corporate America right now. They're looking to maybe eventually launch out on their own. Maybe they're currently working somewhere, but they're like longing for the day to start their own thing. Or maybe you're just talking to somebody who's a year in, less than a year in, and you just want to give them some words of wisdom, sage, sage advice. What would that be for them? So I am not, I'm a very conservative individual when it comes to risk taking, as one can probably tell by listening to this. I am a huge proponent of not just cutting the salary tie on day one or day zero and starting your own thing. If you have nothing else in the hopper, for lack of better terminology, I'm a hundred percent in the camp of, especially from a design and development angle, there is a lot of freelance work out there. So build that up. I would, and this is coming from a person that doesn't really like working nights and weekends and things along those lines, but I would rather see somebody have a season of time where they're working a lot more so that then when they drop their full-time job, they have cushion and they have padding Mm -hmm. that they're not just going salary to nothing and then 
praying. <laughs> <laughs> that's the I, I it, it drives me nuts to see a lot of people that are that just say just get started and just do it follow your dreams that's all great and whatnot but if you have a family especially if you have a family and you're not the only one then there's more responsibility there that's right and i see a lot of entrepreneurship that doesn't feel responsible especially getting started and i know that that's not a black and white statement there is a gray area there but there's that. And then for the person who is running their own business, find somebody that has ran a similar business to you. It doesn't have to be the same thing, just in the same general area that has been 10 times farther than where you've been mm-hmm. and pick their brain. Mm-hmm. You will find that there are more people I did not hire a professional business coach. I didn't go on LinkedIn and like try to find business coach. I initially scoured my network to try to find some CEO or owner or whatever that would just be willing to give me a couple of hours of their time every month Hmm. and pay for their lunch and dinner Hmm. and whatnot. And when you find that just having those day-to-day conversations and be vulnerable around finances What's in the bank account? What's in accounts receivable? What are you paying people? Have that, you know, level of vulnerability. Because if you don't have that vulnerability with that person, it's not worth anybody's time. Hmm. And if you can look at all of that on a very regular basis and the consistency is what matters there. Hmm. I met with my coach for the first six months, one hour every week. And now we're at a point to where we're doing basically half day sessions once a month. And so consistency is key because that consistency provides a much higher level of accountability. Yeah. When you know you're going to be meeting with somebody once a week, you're going to have your crap together for the most part. Yeah. So those are the two pieces of advice that I would have. Yeah. Find, find, find that mentor, find that person who's a little bit ahead of you uh, for sure. Buy them lunch. Um, And then also (laughs) that piece about, you know, hedge your bets a little bit like you want to have some stuff in the pipeline i think those are both excellent excellent words of wisdom i'm going to assume chris that people hear this advice about go find somebody who's 10 times further along and somebody's probably going to listen to this and be like well 10 times further along is literally where chris is right now so with that in mind where can get listeners go to follow you to get in contact with you what would be the best way to reach out if they had follow-up questions Yeah. So connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn, post a ton. So definitely follow me there. You can drop me a message on LinkedIn. Sometimes LinkedIn isn't the best way to get in touch with me. Um, You can also drop me an email, chris at classiccity.com. And we'd be more than happy to uh, jump on a call and have a chat. Awesome. Well, Chris, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being here. You had a wonderful, candid conversation. You talked numbers, which is always so valuable for our listeners and for me personally. Um, And I was just really thankful for your talking about, yes, your successes, but also the drawbacks and the cliff that you ran over, but ultimately where you're now on a growth trajectory that I'm super excited to see where you guys go. So I've learned a lot. Really appreciate your time today. Likewise. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners. If you found value out of our podcast today, please share it with your friends and subscribe for future episodes. Also, don't forget to leave us a review because it helps other people find us and hear inspiring stories like the one we heard today. If you are the founder of a software development agency 
or you know somebody who is, and you'd like to share something exciting that you're up to with our audience, drop me a line at tony at equip.com. That's A-C-C-Q-U-I-P.com.